Good morning. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Crosspoint Fellowship. If you're a visitor with us, we want to encourage you uh, by letting you know what a privilege it is to worship with you, to gather together, to do the things we do when we gather. There's some cards in the backs of the chairs where if you're a visitor, you can fill that out. There's also cards for prayer. And if anyone in the body has prayer needs, you can fill those out, and we go through those, and we pray every week for the things on those cards, and then we try to get visitors connected as well. We have a visitor's kiosk right here that after the service, um, if you will go there, there'll be someone there to connect you to what's going on around here and what we believe and, and how to get plugged in if the Lord's leading you to do that. We're going to uh, be in our fourth week of elder-led congregationalism this morning, and uh, before we do that, I would like to uh, pray. Let's pray together. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that the tone of this morning would be one in, of a reality that you have saved us, <clears throat> that we have a salvation that can be proclaimed unto all the earth. You have been incredibly good to us, and we gather humbly before you for your glory to fulfill your purposes this morning. Lord, as we do every Sunday, we want to, or most Sundays, we want to pray for another local church. We pray for Grace Church. We pray for Pastor Adam over there. Pray that you would bless that ministry abundantly. I pray that as they're gathered together this morning and doing what they do, as they gather, that they would be glorifying you, that they would be reaching the lost, that they would be discipling the saved, and that you would be encouraged by what you're seeing your people do there. I pray that you would bless that ministry abundantly, and I am thankful that we are on the same team serving the same God. Lord, this morning, we desire to be guided by you through your word. And so we humble ourselves before you, and we do ask, Lord, that you would give us clear minds, clear hearts. Lord, I think the weather that we have, is, it makes it difficult to be um, super alert so early in the morning when some of us may rather be in bed. And so, Lord, we just confess that to you. I confess it to you and ask that you would guide our time according to your will. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is week four of our series titled Elder-Led Congregationalism. And can I just be honest for a moment as the pastor who's preaching this thing? Can I say that I think it's been a very heavy and difficult sermon series? We've never really had something like this where the elders work on something for two and a half years and it feels so ready and so pregnant and you're like, man, we can't wait to preach this. And then you start preaching like, oh, this is hard. This is heavy, and I think it's okay to just say right up front, I think it's been a heavy and even difficult series. Some of the most difficult preaching I've ever done in an equally difficult season, but that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. We've taken a hard look at the Old Testament covenant so far. We've looked at the, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Today we're going to look briefly at the Davidic covenant. And even just the word covenant could make us sleepy if we're not careful. But we've done this hard work of looking through the Old Testament covenants to understand the priestly and the kingly role that we are called to in Jesus as a royal priesthood. We're, we're going through this process of collecting details through the covenants to understand our job description as priests and kings who are referred to as a, a kingly or a royal priesthood. And it's been hard. I think as I've, gotten, I've asked for lots of questions, and I've gotten lots of questions, and it has helped me to understand where we are as a body and the things that are less clear. And one of the things that's been abundantly clear through some of the questions I've received is that this series has been abstract at times. You know, it's, it's abstract. It's difficult to wrap our heads and hearts 
around certain parts because we're looking at these covenants that existed long ago, but we're talking about who we are now, and it can seem abstract. It's been a lot like studying through Leviticus so that we can better understand Matthew. You can understand Matthew a lot better when you study through Leviticus, but studying through Leviticus is some hard work and some heavy lifting. I think this series has been the kind of hard that's like spending a lot of time studying the law so that we can better understand the beauty of the gospel. Rest assured, you can understand the beauty of the gospel more if you understand how the law could not achieve what it achieved. But studying that law is hard work, but I would say worthwhile. Today, we are going to make a shift for, the, for our body, but we're going to make a shift from abstract to concrete. What I mean is that one of our goals in today's sermon is to take the things that seem a bit nebulous, those things that seem maybe hard to wrap our heads and our, and our hands around, and make those things more concrete and understandable in how we see them potentially playing out in this local church. So here's our roadmap for the morning. We've got three things we're going to look at this morning. Here's our roadmap for the morning. First, we're going to look briefly at the Davidic covenant to understand the kingly role that we have in Christ. What we saw last week was that God did something remarkable in the Mosaic and Davidic covenants. In the Mosaic, he separated out the priesthood, and in the Davidic, he separates out the kingly role. And we learn things through that separation. So first, we're going to look at the Davidic covenant to understand the kingly role that we have in Christ. Second, we're going to talk very specifically, concretely, about how that comes together here at Crosspoint, potentially. And third, we'll consider some encouragement. We're going to pray. That's our roadmap for the morning. So before we look at the Davidic covenant, we actually need to look at things that existed in the Old Testament, things that plans that were made hundreds of years before David was born that would instruct us in this kingly role. So turn to Deuteronomy 17, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17. Before I read this, I want you to understand this was written before there was a kingship. This was written before there was an Old Testament system of sacrifice. So much of what we've studied for the last few weeks helps us to understand this priestly king role. The kingly role is very, very priestly. These words of the law were written about a kingship that would not exist for hundreds of years. What that tells us is that the law that we've been studying, the laws given by God in his infinite wisdom, would include help for God's people and guidance for God's people that they wouldn't understand when they read it the first time. But still they would have to read it. And they would have to understand it. They would have to store it away in their hearts and their minds so that when they got to the point where they needed it, it would then make sense. There would be things that they would face later that they needed God's law for now. So let's look at the details of Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, this hasn't happened yet. He's saying when it happens, I will set, and you, when you say as a people, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And listen to the details of this kingly role. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return to that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, here's what he will do. 
When he sits on that throne, he will write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, these statutes, and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not learn, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is direction given for a kingship that doesn't exist yet. And there's some important details about this kingly role that we will see. We're going to have a screen up that will help you to clearly see what we see outlined before this exists in the law. The first is the Lord chooses who this king will be. And he must be from among the brothers. And when we look at the details of what this king must be in his kingly role, first, his interest cannot be selfish, meaning he cannot use that kingly role to acquire horses and many wives and silver and gold. His interest cannot be selfish. Second, he must write for himself a copy of the law of God, keep the law with him at all times, and read it all the days of his life. This is different than other kings. His kingly role is a mediating and priestly role. He cannot be selfish. Many kings would use their power to make their name great. You might even be able to think of examples, I don't know, in our own country where people get to power and they do their best to make their own names great. But here, the kingly interest for Israel cannot be self-serving. We cannot focus on acquiring things that benefit only us. It has to be a focus on others. And then interestingly, as most kings might have someone else write a copy of the law for him, he has to write his own copy of the law of God. It has to be approved by the, the, by the Levitical priests, and he can't just write it, but he has to keep it with him at all times. He's, he's a guy that's walking around like this. He's a king. That's all, he's not waving his hands with a, with a scepter. He's walking around with, with the word of God everywhere he goes, and it says every day he would spend time in the law. Through the law, the king will learn to fear God by doing what God says. So something else we learn about this kingship is that you learn to fear God by doing what God says. Through this law, he will stay humble, and through it, he will instruct others to do what it says. How will he ru rule? Right here. This is how this king will rule before this kingship ever exists. Before this kingly role was ever filled, God's plan for his people would be that this king would be a mediating king, one that would mainly reign and rule through God's law. And listen, when we say reign and rule, just, just in, your, in your notes right there, reigning and ruling, we're, okay, uh, if I'm supposed to be a king and I'm supposed to reign and rule a priest king in this local body, how does that work? Reigning and ruling is simply making kingdom decisions. Put that in your notes. It's a very important connecting point. Reigning and ruling is making kingdom decisions when you have the responsibility, power, and authority to make them. This was how the king would reign and rule, and he would do so through this law of God. His priority as king wasn't what he decided it would be. His priority as king would be whatever God says it should be. So that's before the kingship exists. Now fast forward to 1 Samuel 8. Go ahead and turn a little bit to the right to 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is where the kingship begins. In 1 Samuel, we see that Israel gets their first king. Now Samuel, if you're wondering who he is, he is a seer. Samuel is a prophet of God from the Lord through whom God's people would know the Lord's will 
And they would know the Lord's plans. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. If you want to know what God has to say for you in your situation, in this situation, go see Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 8, Israel demands to have a king like all the other nations, just as the Lord said they would in his law. And look at 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 9. We're moving from a time of judges to a time of kings, and Samuel and his sons were the judges. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. And look what happened. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. Something that those who rule and reign should not be doing. They turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. We don't like judges who do those kinds of things. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Wouldn't that be so encouraging for Samuel? The whole nation gathers to remind him that he's old, first of all, and second, that his sons are kind of sorry. I can't imagine how this moment must have been for Samuel. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now... Appoint for us a king to judge us. That judging is a reigning and a ruling and a making of kingdom decisions. Appoint for us a king who will judge us like all the nations. And look at verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And look at what Samuel does. He goes to the Lord. Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, these people have, are serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. This sounds remarkably similar to when the priestly role was separated out last week from the people. God tells Samuel the same way that he told Moses, do what the people ask, but not because they were being faithful, but because they were being unfaithful. Israel ultimately wanted a king because they were rejecting the kingship of God. God would use even this faulty way of moving into a kingship to help instruct us and encourage us and appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ and understand who we are in him. But ultimately it started because they rejected the kingship of God. And it says, God says, they were serving other gods. So like the priesthood was turned into a separate role from the nation, so the kingship was separated out as well. The first king of Israel was Saul. And it did not go well with Saul. This began a long series of good kings and bad kings and lots and lots of bad kings and an occasional good king for the history of Israel. It's daunting to read through it, the ups and the downs. But the king who followed Saul was David. And through God's covenant with David, we learn a bit more about the role of a king who is a proper king before God. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is actually the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning and then we'll get real practical. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is burdened that he has an amazing house, but the Lord has no house to dwell in. And he wants to build a house for the Lord, and, and it seems a noble thing. And, 
And the Lord establishes with him a covenant through this desire that explains to us, in fact, that God is building a house. And through this covenant of David, something very significant would happen. Look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, he's talking to Nathan. God is talking to Nathan and saying, this is what you're going to tell David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel. God's saying, I did this. I took you, David. You were a shepherd, and we're going to use that shepherding for you to come over here. And interestingly enough, he says to be prince over my people Israel. My people, not your people, my people, David. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. Doesn't that sound like Adam and Eve being planted in the garden? I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Oh, David, you want to make me a house? I get it. But here's the thing. I'm making you a house, and it's not temporary. Let's see what it says. I will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body And I will establish his kingdom. If I was David, I would be listening right now. He, the one I raise up after you, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. If you don't write in your Bible, this is the time you start writing in your Bible. Underline or circle forever. That is a word that has not been used in the covenants yet, and it is of extreme importance forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But listen to what it says in verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Circle it again before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Circle it again. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Forever is an important word. When the Lord repeats himself, he repeats himself so that you listen to what is repeated. Four things that we learn from 2 Samuel 7 about the kingship that is a proper kingship before God. The first detail is he says, shepherd my people. I called you from being a shepherd. Shepherd my people. The kingship that is proper before God is not one of lordship and domineering. It's one of shepherding. It's one that's tender. It's one that lovingly brings sheep along as their king, but also as their shepherd. The shepherding informs the kingly rule. Shepherd my people. And then notice that God says that you would be prince over God's people. Ultimately, the king over God's people is a prince and compared to the king of God, who is God over his people. 
So God is king over his people, and he refers to David as being prince in as much as he's saying, this kingship isn't whatever you want it to be. This, your kingship ultimately falls under my kingship, and so your goal is to do what I tell you. That's why they would have to go back to the law and say, oh, I need to write the... David would be one who would go back and say, I need to write down the whole law. David would be one to go back and say, I need to make sure I'm not being self-serving. David would be one to go back and say, I need to take this with me all the days of my life, and I need to spend time in it because through it, I learn how to be a proper prince under our, our God who is king, even though I sit on this earthly and temporary throne. God says that his name would be made great by God for God's purposes. Again, so many of those who get into power, be it a kingship or a presidency or whatever else, and they do their best to make their own names great, that their names would go down in history. And God says, your name is about my name. Your kingship is about my kingship. And I will make your name great because you can't do it on your own. But when I make your name great, it will be for my purposes. And then the fourth thing, which is extremely important, is that God will plant his people as a kingdom forever. This sounds like the garden. This sounds like the, the, the original plan with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were literally taken, planted into a garden that they would work and that they would keep to guard the holiness in the garden. This forever covenant made with David is extremely significant. This is God vowing that through David, there would ultimately be one that would reign and rule forever. There will be one who through you, David, will reign and rule forever. Forever, consider how this might be received. To know that through the kingship of David, God would establish a people who are not just his treasured possession, but his treasured possession forever. What I mean is that these previous covenants that we've looked at have gone all the way to the extents of the, the full extent of the earth, that every nation would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. But now through this Davidic covenant, we've gone beyond earth and we've even gone beyond time to a forever covenant where there would be one who reigns and rules in a kingly position forever. This has never been said before, and this is utterly significant. Through the offspring of David, there would be one who would ultimately deliver Israel from pain, from suffering, and from sin. And we know, as those who are living on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection, that King Jesus is the offspring of David, who perfectly fulfills the kingly role. And what we've established in the last few weeks is that in King Jesus... We are restored to that role of priest-king. So these things that we've covered help us to understand this kingly role, and we know that it only exists in Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes this a forever covenant and a forever kingdom in which we will reign and rule with him, as it says in 2 Timothy, forever. Now, I mean, how do I get you to wrap your heads around forever, right? Forever, I, you may be thinking about Sandlot forever, and, and, and I'm sitting here going, how do we wrap our heads around forever? And the reality is we can't. The best we can do is to do what these other kings do and take God's word and, 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 and understand it and take it with us and live in it and apply it every day. But forever is a significant reality in the Davidic kingdom, and we'll continue to learn more about that in the coming weeks and months. Now is where we will make a transition from the abstract to the concrete. You might be thinking, that felt a little abstract too, but we want to understand it. Here's where we're going to make a transition. What does all of this mean for a local church and its elders and its deacons 
and its members. We've, we've spent four weeks now considering this priest-king role, what God's been doing over the course of time, what we've called a, a covenantal trajectory that's getting us to a certain point. Now, that's great. We've studied these covenants. We understand the priestly and kingly role. What does this mean for a local church and everyone who makes it up? Here's what it means. First, church, family, we have a responsibility to structure ourselves in accordance with God's word. Let me say that again, because some of us are not operations people. I'm, I nerd out when it comes to operations. I love charts. I love graphs. I love mind mapping. I love ordering things. Like when we hear that there's a parking lot problem, I'm like, get me a, an aerial shot of the parking lot. Let's do this. I nerd out on that kind of stuff, but not everybody does. Here's what we need to understand. We're not preaching this because I nerd out about good order. Our Lord puts a high priority on things being properly ordered. We can't just give away power and authority indiscriminately in the local church. We've never done that, but we have to make sure that we never indiscriminately give away power and authority to whomever we wish, whenever we wish, however we wish. We have to structure ourselves as God tells us, the same way that the king would structure his life the way that God told him. What I mean is this. Think about it as a circle. The gospel creates gospel order. And gospel order guards and protects and preserves the gospel, which creates gospel order, which preserves the gospel. It's a system that God has given us that when we follow it and when we try to do what he tells us to do, it preserves and it guards and it guides and it instructs. That's what it means to be a gospel people. Rest assured, God cares deeply about good order, and we should too. In the law that God gave, he gave order to an entire system, a sacrificial system that would last for 15 years that didn't exist yet, so that when it did exist, it would exist rightly. In the law, God gave order to a kingship that didn't exist yet, so that when it did exist, that kingship would exist rightly and in accordance with his plans. This theme runs through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and continues in the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels, we see King Jesus making significant corrections along the way about the purpose of his kingdom and a right view of authority and good order. He warns against lordship. He warns against domineering like other pagan kings. You can't do that, so there must be good order. He outlines in Acts the importance of elders being able to elder and deacons being able to serve. In Matthew and Corinthians, we see the importance of the gathered congregation binding and loosing, working and keeping, and guarding the gospel and the people identified with it. Church family, structure is important. It may not be exciting to you, but what we have to understand is that it is very important to our Lord. Consider, I was talking to Brad this morning. He was like, just consider the planets. If they weren't right where they were, none of it would work. Consider that the moon affects the ocean significantly. And our God is a God of good order. We've seen it from the creation week. We've seen it through now. So structure is important. The second thing, how, does, how do we make this more concrete? Structure in a local church is established through its constitution and bylaws. Constitution and bylaws. If you have joined Crosspoint Fellowship at any time in the last decade, we have required you to read and study and understand the Constitution and bylaws before you join. 
Structure in a local church is always established through constitution and bylaws. Do you notice that not all local churches are the same? Like, have you ever visited other local churches? How oh, do they do things differently here? Usually, there's different beliefs in the same faith. There may be some different leadership structures. There may be different priorities put on different things. And largely, you will be able to tell what that is through a constitution of that local church. At Crosspoint, we have always had a high view of elder leadership. And we still do. And we will continue to have a high view of elder leadership. And at Crosspoint, we have always had a high view of church membership. And we still do. And we will always continue to have a high view of church membership. Here's the purpose of this sermon series, church. All three elders, Ben McGraw, Brad Cardwell, and myself, Scott Sutton, have agreed through study and prayer in the last two and a half years that our Constitution is lacking when it comes to the issue of authority. And inasmuch as our official statement of church order is lacking, the three of us have also agreed to preach this sermon series at this time for our church so that the church can begin to rightly understand that we believe, your elders who you followed for 15 years, we believe that God has a very specific plan for the authority and power that he has given to each of you, both individually and corporately. So one practical change when this abstract becomes concrete, one practical change would be a change to our constitution. Here's what our constitution currently says. Do we have that up there? Under the authority section of our current constitution, it says, the body of elders is the governing body of this church as described in Appendix C. This is the way that it's been since 2003. So what practical change might we consider? The only mention of any authority in our Constitution is the authority of the elders. Now rest assured, we haven't gotten to the two sermons on elder authority and the elder-led part of elder-led congregationalism. But listen, elders have very, very real authority. Elders have a very significant power and authority that comes from God. One of the questions that I've received is, I value the authority that God gives to elders to lead. And this doesn't minimize that at all. Elders have significant responsibility. Church, you're not allowed to lead yourself by God's design. The same way the king wasn't allowed to do whatever he wanted when he wanted, and the same way the priests couldn't just carry the ark however they wanted, church, you're not allowed to lead yourself. God's design is that elders would lead you with a a specific kind of authority and power. As we will see in the upcoming sermons on elders, we have a significant responsibility to lead this body. It is no small thing. The problem that the three elders see and that we have is that there is no mention at all about any other kind of authority that you might have as the church. That's the kind of change we're talking about. Not taking away from something, but adding something that maybe should have been there the whole time. Remember, we we said in the first week, if we see something in Scripture that we haven't seen before, it's up to us to change. This is a humble change. This is eating some humble pie and saying, we didn't get that at first. But as we studied, here we are saying maybe that should be a part of who we are because we're seeing it in this word that we're all supposed to be treasuring and reading. And as we read it and as we treasured it, God, as he always does, shows us more. Essentially, we believe that our Constitution needs to be changed to read something like this possibility that we might shift to under the authority section is that the governing body of this church is the congregation as led by the body of elders. Or, to say it another way, the church is elder-led and congregationally 
ruled. Now, these are just possibilities. I don't actually believe that I have the power, and I don't even believe that the elders have the power to say, yes, this is what we're doing. We're telling you this right now. These are possibilities. We're presenting to you as a church who we view as a gathered people of priest kings who have a particular kind of power and responsibility. We believe that it's the job of the elders to help you understand your job. Like our job description is to help you understand your job description and to equip you to do it at every step of the way. This means more eldering, not less eldering. Do you know how much easier it would be for us to just say, we're just going to make all the decisions? Land, we'll make the decisions. Finances, we'll make the decisions. But guess what? We're tired. And, I, and we're starting to say, why are we so tired? And then we're looking at it we're saying, oh, maybe, maybe there's something about this whole tiredness and this thing that we're experiencing where it's hard for these three guys to do all this. And over here where we see this priest-king reality, oh, and you start to bring these things together. We believe that we are equipping you to do your job. We believe that the call of the elder, the heavy call, is to give counsel to help the congregation make decisions that fall within the congregation's realm of responsibility. And what I mean by the congregation's realm of responsibility is that we're supposed to help you make decisions about how and when and in what ways we as a body guard the integrity of the gospel and the people who are identified with it. Just one practical difference would be rather than saying, hey, these people are members now, we would go through a process where you would say, as we bring them up here, yes, they are a part of us because I hear what their gospel proclamation is and I see it in their life. That's just one practical way. Rather than the elders saying, this is what we're doing, we're saying, this is what we're suggesting, and then the body affirms, yes, they are a part of us. They are gospel people, and we proclaim Jesus with them gladly. We give counsel to help the congregation make decisions that fall within their realm of responsibility, while we as elders lead and also still make decisions that fall within the realm of our responsibility. It sounds like it could be complicated, but frankly, what we have here is a beautiful system of discipleship. Discipleship. Where, rather than making all of the decisions for you as the elders, rather than making all the decisions for you as a church, We shepherd and counsel you to make the decisions that you are supposed to make while we make the decisions we're supposed to make. Our goal is to eventually, in God's timing, move in a direction as a church where our official structure and order and documentation and our constitution and what we proclaim we believe, we're moving in a direction, ideally, that reflects the different kinds of authority that exist within a local church, that rightly reflects the reality of the keys of the kingdom, And that rightly reflects a clear explanation of what it means to bind and loose, all while never neglecting the importance of the elder role in leadership. That's why it is elder-led congregationalism. We also want you to know, church, some of the questions I've asked have been asked in I've been asked have been asked in panic. What is happening? I've never heard of this before. I'm freaking out a little bit. These seemed like a lot of changes in a short amount of time, church. We want you to know. We're not going to rush this process. It might take years. Now, we're not going to preach on it for years. We've got like a couple more weeks in the sermon series, and then everybody's going to take a nap, and then we're going to get back to expository preaching the way that we are used to because we love it and it is good. We're not, someone asked me, are we abandoning expository preaching? Oh, no, absolutely not. I can't wait to get back to it. But we'll have, we'll have member meetings. We'll have a little like more member meetings than normal, and we'll work through these things, and we'll continue to shepherd and see if collectively... If we believe as a church that this is where God is calling us, we will tell you what we believe as the elders, but ultimately we believe the decision will lie in your hands as a gathered congregation. 
and we will fulfill our role to patiently shepherd you through this decision, even if it takes a while. Here's what it boils down to, church. Your leadership is convicted. We have dug into the word. We have spent time in prayer over it. And your leadership is convicted. And rather than impose our conviction upon you by telling you what you're going to do, we want to lovingly shepherd you. We want to patiently respond to your emails. We want to meet with you in your life groups. And in our shepherding roles, we want to have lunches and coffee with you to bring clarity wherever it is needed. We will not take our convictions and force them upon you through the authority of command. We will lovingly shepherd you through the authority of counsel via the word. The purpose of congregational authority that we've been considering for the last four weeks, the purpose of congregational authority is far more important than votes and meetings. When you hear the word congregational, you just, people go to votes and meetings. And yeah, there will be some meetings. And yeah, there will be some stuff we'll need to vote on if we go in this direction. But if we gather all the priestly details and the kingly details from the last four weeks, we believe that the main emphasis of your authority as a church, your authority as priest kings, lies in how you live daily and what we do when we gather weekly. Hear that. We believe that it's mainly about how you live daily and how you view your responsibility with each other and with a lost world, as well as how we gather weekly, daily and weekly. We believe that's where most of it plays out. Our hope is that you would see that God has given you power and authority to bless one another through the gospel. I had a deacon send me an, e- an email and say, you know, I-, I just heard congregationalism and man, how we can bless one another through the gospel and actually take responsibility for one another as members of one another, but also take responsibility for a lost world. I'm, I'm, I'm learning that and that's different than what I was expecting. We hope that you would see that God has given you the power and the authority to bless one another through the gospel. Our hope is that you would see that God has given you the power and authority to take seriously the responsibility to work and keep the garden of the church. Considering this church is a garden, how do we do what Adam was supposed to do with Eve? We hope that you would see that you have the power and the authority to remain consecrated to the ways of God, to cultivate the righteousness of God among ourselves and even among those who might one day be a part of us, a lost and looking world. Spending time with the Lord daily, like, like the king, to heed the kingly charge. You have the power and authority to heed the kingly charge given to David to treasure God's word, to take it with you where you go, and to spend time in it with him daily, and to spend time in it now together as a gathered people, working hard to make sure that our brothers and sisters are doing the same in large part. As many of you have already noted in some of your responses, Crosspoint's doing a lot of these things well. This isn't a completely different like course correction for our church. In large part, we've talked about priestly stuff before. We've talked about kingly stuff before. And Crosspoint's doing some of these things really well. Here's what the elders think. We think we can be even better. And we think one of the ways that we can be even better as a church in leaning out and loving people and leaning in and loving people is to understand The elders simply want to make it clear that the reason we should do these things is not just because the elders say so. We want to make it abundantly clear that the reason you should view these things as a priority in your life is because God gives you, the gathered congregation, the authority and the power and the responsibility to tend to these priestly and kingly roles. One final detail 
to make the abstract more concrete is related to that phrase, gathered congregation. The gathered congregation. This has rocked us a bit as we have learned more of what is meant by that phrase. We mentioned in the first week that if we see something in Scripture that we have not seen before, that it's our responsibility to change. What that means, that something that we found, is that we are a church in as much as we gather to hear the word preached and taught. We're a church. What makes you a church? What makes this universal church visible? The local church. And the local church is made visible when they gather together to do things. And when we gather together to hear the word preached and taught, we are a church. We are a church in as much as we gather to worship in song. We are a church in as much as we gather to partake of the supper every week. We are a church in as much as we gather to give of our offerings. And we are a church in as much as we gather to recognize baptism and new members. So here's where the abstract becomes concrete. Inasmuch as we gather separately in two services, we are two churches. Does that freak anybody out a little bit? I think by the definition that the Lord has shown us, inasmuch as we gather separately once at 9 and once at 1045, we kind of have like a 9 o'clock church and a 1045 church. Crosspoint in two services effectively becomes two churches where you gather separately for the word to be taught and preached, gather separately for worship and song and all the other things that were mentioned. We are convicted that that is not the way it should be. Through the word of God, Ben, Brad, and myself have been convicted that if it is at all possible, we need to make it a priority to gather weekly for worship together, if at all possible. We have had seasons where it's simply not possible because of our parking or because of seating or because of our fire code issues. We are convicted that if it's possible, we should worship together weekly. It should be a new priority for us. It wasn't a priority when we started looking into the sermon series. The priority was go to two services, don't ever turn back because that's what makes sense because then you have room as you grow. But then we're saying, wait, as we gather separately, we're two separate churches. And I think some of you have felt the effects of being two separate churches. I've heard some of the feedback is, man, it feels like ships passing in the night. There's people that I don't even know. I asked someone yesterday, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so. Um, are you a visitor? And they joined six months ago. I've heard that from you guys. Interestingly enough, over the last few months, we've been working to upgrade our fire system. If you look around, you'll see some strobes. You'll see some fire panels, some communicators. Don't look too close. It'll freak you out. But we've been doing upgrades. And I have been so frustrated at how slow these upgrades have gone. They have dragged out for not just extra weeks, but for extra months. But check this out. In the same time that we're convicted to go back to one service, the Lord has provided a way to do it. We've been working the last few months to upgrade this fire system and raise our occupancy to at least 350 seats. We have 352 chairs. A bunch of them are stacked over there. I sat with Mr. Papa Giorgio, our local fire marshal, and I laid every 352 chairs out. And he said, I think if we upgrade the fire systems, we can upgrade the, the certificate of occupancy for your church. We should have it next week. Do you hear that timing? Church, please don't ignore that. We should have it next week. I've been so frustrated that it's taken so long. We should have it next week. So in the same time we're convicted to go back to one service, the Lord has provided a way to do it. What a crazy encouragement. It is so 
humbling. I tried so hard to get this done a long time before next week. But the Lord said, no, 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 you wait on my time. Next week, we will meet together for one service at 10.30 a.m., and our hope is to continue to meet all together for the foreseeable future. Hopefully, two services will be a thing of the past at Crosspoint Fellowship. I kind of figured there would be like the wave and an uproar of awesomeness, but I'll take whoever clapped. Yeah. I hope it's a morale boost for us, because by God's design, it should be. We should value being together as a church, and now we will have the opportunity to do that. This way, we're worshiping together, we'll be giving together, we'll be gathering for the preaching and teaching together, we will be taking the supper together, we will be recognizing baptism and new members together as the gathered church is supposed to do. Now, if you're an operations person, you might be thinking, oh, I have a hundred questions about that. Well, someone else is going to preach for the next two weeks, and I'm going to shift into my operations role as executive pastor, and we're going to work through the details, but we will meet together next week at 1030 in here, and we'll be sending out lots of information of what that looks like, and we hope it is an encouragement because we believe it's God's best. Let's pray, and then Brad will lead us in the supper. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We humble ourselves before you. We are thankful for your timing, and we're thankful for your design. Lord, I pray that you would guide Brad as we continue to take the supper and keep our hearts attentive on you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.